This year, I am focused on saving and investing, but I still want to do things like travel. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side-by-side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times points on your spending, which means you could end up with a free flight or maybe a better hotel room. So what could future you do with smarter financial decisions? Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Do you want to set your child up for success? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. Well, I know with Eleanor, when she was struggling so much with math, if she had been able to do online learning at home, she would have been much better able to keep up with class, and that would have just made the whole situation much easier for her. Don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And half your listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com happier. Visit IXL.com happier to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast that gives you strategies for building happier habits into your daily life. This week, we'll talk about why you should give someone a surprise treat. And we're very excited to have a special guest today, the musician and writer, Moby. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I'm in New York City, and with me is my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, who's my favorite person to talk to about happiness. That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in L.A., and Gretch, today I'm happy and sad because Jack is reaching the end of his kindergarten year, so I'm feeling a little weepy, but um, also excited. (laughs) The days are long, but the years are short. Exactly. One thing I wanted to remind people about is that I'm doing my Facebook Live video every week. Usually it's Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern. So if you want, if you have stuff stuff that you're burning to say or questions or observations about what we're talking about on the podcast, please tune into that on my Facebook page, Gretchen Rubin, and we will take the conversation to another level. Yes. So that's Tuesdays on Facebook. I've been trying to tune into those, Gretchen, watch you. Well, you should chime in. You should comment. I, sh- I know. I, I, I should. I will. I'll try this Tuesday. <laughs> um, also, Gretch, I wanted to mention back on the subject of thank you notes, which I feel like is going to be like, <laughs> we're going to be talking about this for the next three years. Um, we first talked about thank you notes in episode 63, and then we did what we called a deep dive in episode 67, um, where we discussed them further. Yes. Um, but since then, a uh, few listeners have brought up a point that I actually meant to mention and forgot um, in our deep dive, and that's the gender issue surrounding thank you notes. I thought we covered everything. We talked about it at such length, but we left out this whole aspect of it. Yes, that women are expected to write the thank you notes. Here's what our listener Carla had to say. In listening to the two episodes on thank you notes, I realized that the thing that so irks me about the expectation to write thank you notes is that it feels so gendered. 
It seems like another item on the to-do list of women across this country that is just holding them back from doing something they really enjoy. Who is expected to write the thank you note after the kid's birthday? Mom. Who is expected to write the thank you note for the new baby gift? Mom. Who is expected to write the thank you note for the wedding gift? The bride. If I felt this obligation were more equitably shared between the sexes, I might be more amenable to it. But there is just something that feels like this is another way to make feel guilty, hold back, limit women, especially mothers. I am totally on team Gretchen on this. Forget about it. Move on. You have a life to live and better things to do than write 30 thank you notes. Um, you know, there's something to that, Gretch. This is the thing about thank you notes is this like there's just level within level within level. I mean, who knew when you gave yourself that demerit that we would unleash this giant conversation about deeper values? Um, it's fascinating. And I think she makes an excellent point. She does. And for anyone who doesn't remember, this all started because I failed to write <laughs> thank you notes after Jack's sixth birthday party. Um, and yes, I do still feel guilty about it. And to 30 people. To 30 yeah, people. And no, I have not um, rectified the situation. But anyway, moving on. Um, excellent point, Carla. <laughs> Yes. Um, but yes, moving on. Uh, this week, Elizabeth, our Try This at Home tip is to give someone a surprise treat. We have this whole theme going about treats, like treat yourself, why it's important to treat yourself. And this is about why you should give someone else a surprise treat. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people would like to get a surprise treat as well as give a surprise treat. But if you give one, you're probably more likely to then get one. Well, that's true. Um, and what's interesting, the research shows that the brain responds much more strongly when something's unexpected than if something's just pleasurable. So you prefer unexpected pleasures to expected ones. And so if you're giving a surprise treat, someone is going to react to that much more strongly than if it's something that they expected to get. Um, and like you say, you can't control getting a surprise treat, but you can control giving a surprise treat. And sometimes it's just as much fun to like see someone's face light up as it is um, to get that treat yourself. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, I don't feel like I'm great in the surprise treat department. Um, I'm just thinking <laughs> me neither. Like a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week, Adam was watching a big basketball game and he was we we're trying to figure out what we we're going to do for dinner and Jack had already eaten and I had food but Adam didn't have anything to eat and um I said, "Oh, well, I'll go pick up dinner. What do you want?" And he was shocked. He was like, you will? He goes, no. And I'm like, yeah, I'll go pick it up. You can watch the game. And he was so happy and excited. Um, and it made me realize, like, I could raise the bar um, on my acts of kindness. But it was a surprise treat for him. And I have to say, he was very excited about it. Well, and this is a good point, which is if you want to encourage other people to give you surprise treats, you should be appreciative. Because I think when somebody really reacts with pleasure, then you're like, oh, it's so fun to give a surprise treat. But if people don't seem like they care that much, then you're like, well, I guess it doesn't matter that much whether I make this gesture or not. So, you know, maybe it's just not something that anybody cares about. Yeah, I mean, Gretch, I remember you gave me a nice surprise treat a while back. Um, I forget what was going on, but I was stressed and, you know, as usual. And um, <laughs> you just sent me this great navy blue cashmere zip up uh, hoodie in the mail. Because, you know, I love hoodies, but this was like a nice hoodie yeah. as opposed to what the kind of hoodies I normally wear, which are just like sweatshirts. <laughs> 
And you said, oh, I just thought you needed to get something in the mail. And I still, every time I wear it, I think about that. Oh, that's so nice. I don't even remember doing that, but I'm very glad that I did. It makes me want to send you another surprise gift in the mail. Ah. Um, and that's one, that's one thing about the internet is it makes it a lot easier to do this. Like if you, if you think of something, it's much easier to fulfill than when you had to like go to a store and buy it and stick it in the mail and, and actually like, you know, deal with, deal with that. This way you can just sort of have the impulse, um, and send it very easily. Yeah. And as we were pointing out with me saying I went and picked up dinner for Adam, I mean, it doesn't have to be a gift. It could be, you know, making someone's favorite dinner or making the bed when usually the other person makes the bed or cleaning, you know, the kitchen when normally the other person cleans the kitchen. Yeah, I think a great treat is to do someone's chore. Like everybody has certain chores that are considered their responsibility. And if you just sort of as a nice gesture, do someone's chore for them, it feels like oh, I recognize that you usually do this and um, I, I, like this time I want to like, give you a little break and that's nice. Um, and you and I for a long time talked about like I want – we would say like I want to get a present in the mail and it meant like I want that feeling of like getting something, some bonus, like some – I want to win an award. I want to yeah. you know, like, like win the lottery. I want to like get some like little surprise gift out of nowhere. Um, it's just a fun feeling. Yeah. I mean, this is a big, it's, I feel like the classic example of this is like husbands bringing wives flowers, you know? Yes. Um, right. which again is gendered, but, um, it is the norm that husbands bring. And I, um, I would, I would like to encourage Adam to bring me flowers across <laughs> the street more often. Yeah. He has done it. And yeah. I have to say it just whenever he does, it fills me with glee. I mean, ridiculously. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's, like I hate to bring up thank you notes again because we are like discussing them at <laughs> length. But many people in their discussion of thank you notes said that they thought it was more, it was a lovelier gesture when a thank you note was unexpected for something that a person did not kind of just by custom expect to be thanked for, um, rather rather than like being ex- thanked for a gift. And so, sort of like they would go out of their way to write people spontaneous thank you notes that the person would experience as a surprise treat. And I thought that was a really lovely idea that showing your appreciation for something when someone isn't expecting to be recognized is a lovely treat. That's really nice. And I mean, you know, in discussing this, of course, what's true, which is, you know, what's always true with anything in this realm is that it makes the doer of the surprise treat feel as good as the person getting the treat. So I'm sure, you know, ordering the flowers, making the dinner, writing the thank you note, you feel the surge of warmth and um, affection for the person that you're doing something nice for. No, I mean, the research shows it, too. I mean, you know, do good, feel good. And when you make these gestures to strengthen relationships, it makes you feel happier and better. Um, so now I'm totally inspired to try to think of some more surprise treats for everyone in my life. But I do have a good one that I that I do already that I can share, Ooh. which is super easy, um, which is a good thing in a surprise treat. Um, Every day um, I send a picture of Barnaby to – because he's just hanging out with me in my office all day long. So I send a picture of Barnaby to Eliza, Jamie, and my mother-in-law who's obsessed with Barnaby. And it has some caption like, you know, Barnaby says, like, come home and play with me. Or Barnaby says, it's a great day for a nap or something dumb. But it's like – it's nice to have a little – like a little picture of Barnaby, um, you know, at some unexpected point during the day. So that's that's my little – Surprise treat that I try to do. Another benefit of being a dog owner. <laughs> yes. Surprise treat possibilities. Yeah. 
And also with our whole updates thing, which we've discussed with our family, part of that is trying to send each other pictures quite often. And that is always a great surprise treat. I love seeing pictures of Jack. Um, And then mom will send us pictures of like wherever they are. Um, And yeah, it is. It's it's a little it's a little treat um, just to feel connected. So we're encouraging you, give someone a surprise treat and let us know what was your treat. Did they appreciate it? Did you feel good? It's fun to think about. It's fun to think about getting them, but it's just as fun to think about giving them. Let us know at Twitter, Facebook, drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Or as always, you can go to my website. Um, I have a Post up for every episode. This is happiercast.com slash 69 uh, for any links, images, anything related to this episode. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. And, you know, Elizabeth, I now work with a team and hiring the right people is so important. It's maybe the most important thing. And LinkedIn makes the process of identifying and hiring people easy and intuitive. I know that when I've been hiring for my team, it's hard to find quality candidates to interview. And LinkedIn isn't just a job board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Gretchen. That's linkedin.com slash Gretchen to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. We're so excited to welcome a guest onto the show today. Joining us from Los Angeles is Moby, an electronic musician, DJ, photographer, active supporter of animal rights, and longtime vegan. Before selling more than 20 million albums worldwide, Moby got his start in the New York City club scene in the late 1980s and 90s. That's the subject of his new best-selling memoir called Porcelain. Let's hear a little bit of his song of the same name. Moby, welcome to Happier. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Well, Moby, thank you so much for being here. I have to tell you, I could not put your book down. Um, Not just because your life uh, is so interesting, but because I lived in New York from 1989 to 1998, and you paint such a vivid description of that time in New York. Um, of course, for me, I was like, my big adventure was like a trip to Canal Jeans. <laughs> um, and so I felt like you really unlocked a whole part of New York that I knew nothing about. So I just want to thank you for that. And I kind of feel like I got to relive my early 20s uh, in a way that would have been a lot more fun than what I was doing. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, Gretchen writes a lot about habits and you obviously, you know, as a songwriter and musician have, you know, all of your habits set for how you get that work done. But I'm so curious to hear how it was to sit down and write a a whole book. Did you have to change the way you work? 
Well, one thing I learned pretty quickly uh, is in writing a book, you can't really fake anything. And I'm not going to like throw the craft of songwriting or music production under the bus. <laughs> uh -huh. But the truth is, in making music, you can really, you can fake a lot of it. Oh, in what, what sense do you mean you fake it? If you're working, let's say if you're working in Pro Tools or some, on, you know, some digital workstation, if you have a three-second section that you like, you can copy and paste it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you write a chorus that you like, you can have that same chorus show up four or five times in the song. And you, when you're writing a book, though, you can't just write a good paragraph and then copy and paste it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And so you realize that every single word in the book, I mean, I'm stating the obvious here, but every single word has to be its own word. It has to be discreet and unique and not just, you know, copy and pasted from an earlier part of the book. And in doing that, did you feel like it, it sort of expanded you create, creatively? Like, it, was that a process you enjoyed or, or did you find it frustrating? Well, I guess with a lot of different processes, I mean, creative and otherwise, the biggest barrier is unfamiliarity. Mm. And so I think a lot of times people judge a process based on their discomfort around it. And a lot of times the discomfort is the product of unfamiliarity. So when I first started writing the book, it was awkward because I'd never written a book before. But luckily, I already had a book deal at that point and I had already committed to write it. So I just had to keep writing. And eventually the unfamiliarity sort of fell by the wayside and writing became familiar and I really fell in love with it. Well, and you seem like a person who doesn't have trouble kind of sitting down and getting done what you need to get done, whether like throughout your um, your memoir, you sort of were like, and then I wanted to create this or write this or get this done. And you, and you did. And, and you, do you feel like you're a person who finds it pretty easy to just kind of get cracking? Because for some people, that itself is a huge hurdle to creativity. They sort of can't get themselves going. I guess it's a, it's a combination of things. Like on one hand, um, I just, I love working. Mm, oh, so interesting. I mean, I really am happiest when I'm working on something. But the other is I feel like such a scumbag when I'm procrastinating. <laughs> <laughs> and like I really, like if I spend a day just being lazy and avoiding the things that I know I either should do or that are good for me at the end of the day, I feel like, I don't know, like a disgusting piece of gum at the bottom of someone's <laughs> shoe. <laughs> so you, you feel motivated to work because you just like the feeling of, of being productive more than not fe feeling productive. Yeah, well, I like being productive as opposed to not being productive. But also, once I start working, I'm just reminded of how happy it makes me. You right, know? And that can right. be working on anything. That could be writing music or cleaning the kitchen or doing the laundry or writing a book. I mean... As long as it's productive work, for the most part, I just, that's what makes me feel really good. Well, one of the things that was really interesting about your book is like you describe yourself as kind of a highly anxious person, and that comes across very uh, vividly. But then there, there are many moments where you describe kind of a moment of pure happiness. And you seem to be somebody who really taps into that feeling of like, this is a joyous moment, or like, I'm really feeling this now. Um, in writing this, were you reliving a lot of that? Yeah, I mean, reliving the happy moments was great, but it was also really interesting reliving the very dark and mm. despairing moments. Um, 
And of course, there's sort of almost like a cognitive or we call like a temporal dissonance in writing about something that happened 25 years ago, especially, you know, I'm writing about New York in 1990 or 1991 while I'm sitting by the pool in Los Angeles <laughs> drinking organic white tea <laughs> and it's 2016. Like I feel a little bit like a character I don't know, in a Ray Bradbury book. <laughs> right, because you're doing this time shifting. Yeah, and also, like, sometimes remembering almost feels more vivid than what I'm currently experiencing. So mm. sitting by a pool, drinking organic white tea in the sun in Los Angeles, like, that feels odd and surreal and psychedelic, whereas remembering gritty, squalid New York in 1990, like that actually seems far more real to me. That's interesting. It goes to like a question I have, which is you talk a lot about how poor you were and like you really sort of say, I had, you know, this costs two dollars and this, you know, I, I got this out of the trash and, you know, all of that, which I think is really interesting to just sort of follow that whole line. But now, obviously, being so far from that and being so successful, do you ever feel like it's a hindrance to your creativity that you, you know, aren't poor and struggling? Well, hmm. It's a, the old sort of like progressive lefty in me wants to say yes. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time... <laughs> You know, like, like I want to sort of see it in, in socioeconomic terms, but what I realized a while ago is, so if we were do, if we were talking in 1985, I would have been making music in my bedroom with some cobbled together equipment. And then if we had the same conversation in 2005, I would have been making music in my bedroom with some cobbled together equipment. And now it's 2016 and I'm sitting surrounded by a bunch of cobbled together equipment and I work in my bedroom. So mm -hmm. honestly, the circumstances have never really affected my relationship to music all that much. You know, I mean, like when you're listening to music coming out of two speakers, if you're listening to music in an abandoned factory or a palatial estate overlooking all of LA, really the environment doesn't change it at all because there's that that strange magic relationship to the way the air is moving as it comes as it's being affected by the speakers so that's that that's sort of been the the, the constant in my life so you know the socioeconomic aspect doesn't really affect it that much does it mess with your mind at all like is it is it better do you feel like you have more room in your head because you there's a whole worry that's been lifted from you or is it is it jarring to have gone from one state to the other state or is it great or I mean it just it, it is it seems like it's been a big shift well I mean like many people when I, I grew up very poor yeah and when I was growing up I just worked under the assumption that wealth and fame were going to like if I ever stumbled upon wealth and fame all of my problems would be fixed you know and I think that <laughs> That's sort of yeah. what drives most aspects of our culture is this idea that if you can somehow make enough money and have enough fame, all your problems will be solved. But then if you take a step back and look at the evidence and sort of like empirically assess it, there's nothing to support that idea. In fact, most people, when they have fame and wealth, it knocks 15 years off their life and makes them miserable. Yeah. You know, you think of, you know, Kurt Cobain and Prince 
and Michael Jackson. Yeah. And just the list goes on and on and on. I think of Amy Winehouse if she had never been famous and wealthy. Yeah. Um, So for years, I really wanted, as I started to have more fame and started to make some money, I really wanted fame and money to fix everything. Uh, And then I was profoundly sort of disheartened that these institutions weren't weren't making anything better. And so now, hopefully, I've sort of emerged on the other side where I just say, yeah, you know, I, I have enough money that I can pay the rent and take my friends out to dinner. And I have enough fame that if I do something, a few people are willing to pay attention to it. But beyond that, there's nothing inherently magic and wonderful about fame and wealth. And it's kind of nice to have sort of realized that through experience. It also seems like you really keep yourself grounded with being very disciplined. Like you're famous, obviously, for being a vegan. And you talk a lot about being sober and not being sober and then being sober again. Um, and it, it, it feels, um, it feels like that keeps you from sort of floating off into the air, those practices. Uh, hmm. I mean, I guess maybe there's something to do with like the legacy of, growing up in New England, you know, I grew up in Connecticut and I was surrounded by a lot of dysfunction and degeneracy, but I was also part of this long Calvinist sort of self-denying work ethic. (laughs) Uh And yeah, that's sort of, and I I saw an interview with um, Woody Allen recently and he summed it up really well. He basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, he sort of said like, oh, when things are good, keep working. And when things are bad, keep working. Mm-hmm. Like no matter what happens, just keep working. And the only way you can judge experience is like, is it keeping you from working? And if it's keeping me from working and keeping me from being happy, then it's not good. And ironically, sometimes it's success that actually has prevented me from working on the things that I really love. Uh, no, that's, I mean, that's a huge, just in the writerly world, th- there's so much talk about that. Um, I remember reading something that E.B. White wrote about, um, who's the woman who wrote uh, Gone with the Wind? Margaret Mitchell. And like Margaret Mitchell was so busy being the author of Gone with the Wind that she never n- wrote another book. And, and he was he was <laughs> saying like, you know, success can keep you from doing the very thing that you want to do because it's a huge distraction. I mean, yeah, um, just think of, think of Truman Capote. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. No, so here, here's something that's, that, that I, I was dying to ask. You seem like such a lover of New York City. Like, you just capture it so beautifully. And um, and as Alicia said, like, our lives kind of intersected with yours. I mean, I had a friend who lived above the Baby Doll Lounge, so I remember the Baby Doll Lounge very well. Um, but but now you're in L.A. So how did, how did you decide to move and what do you think of being in L.A.? Elizabeth did the same thing. She was a longtime New Yorker who moved to L.A. And she went through kind of a period of shock, I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> right, Elizabeth? It's a big change. Yes, it's very yeah. different. Yeah. So what, what led you to move to L.A. And, and how do you find it? Well, it's a few things. Um, one is about eight years ago I got sober. Mm. And I pretty quickly learned that New York is paradise for drunks. Mm, and uh, you don't have to drive. Not such a wonderful place to be sober. Mm. And also, I mean, in the course of my life, I've had what I think of as epiphanies, but my epiphanies tend to be things that are like egregiously self-evident to most people. <laughs> you know, like the epiphany of, oh, if I keep drinking 15 drinks a night... I'm going to get sick. (laughs) 
you know, and it only mm-hmm. took me years to realize that. But one of my epiphanies was I was walking up Orchard Street, I don't know, about seven years ago. And it was one of those miserable February days, like 34 degrees and oh. sleeting. And it was just painful. Like every breath hurt and my skin hurt. And it was gray and disgusting. And this little voice in the back of my head said, not only at this present moment are there warm places on the planet, <laughs> there are actually warm places in the United States <laughs> of America where you don't even need a passport to go to them. Right. And that was when I sort of realized like, oh, suffering in this case is optional. Ah. You know, and and then also there's just the, the demographic changes that have happened in New York that lots of people have talked about. You know, the yeah. fact that New York, I believe, has become almost like a victim of its own success where it's such a wonderful place that everyone in the world wants to live there, but because of everyone in the world wanting to be there, it's become prohibitively expensive and the writers and the musicians and the artists, unfortunately, have all had to leave. So it was really those three things. And as far as L.A., I think L.A. has one really overarching big problem, well, apart from the fact that it has no water. (laughs) But the biggest problem is almost an issue of nomenclature that L.A. shouldn't be called a city. You know, if you think of L.A. as a county with 200 bizarre, creative, interesting towns, then it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, But when people come here expecting L.A. to behave like a city, you know, with a center and public transportation and all the things that cities have, it's very disappointing as a city. Yes. But it's phenomenal as a county full of weird towns that's warm in the wintertime. Right. When you're like, this is Silver Lake. I live in Silver Lake. I don't live in L.A. or whatever it is. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I live in Los Feliz, which is adjacent to Silver Lake, and I don't really leave my neighborhood all that often. You know, I live 10 feet from Griffith Park, so I go hiking a lot and see my friends, and I, I kind of feel like I live in a weird, small college town, except that David Fincher and Tom York live up the street from me. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, did you live in Los Feliz for a while, Elizabeth? I did. Yeah, I love Los Feliz. Yeah. yeah then, now I'm in the valley, yeah. which is, you know, sort of the soul-sucking part of L.A., but I, I'm trying to love it. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who've moved to North Hollywood and the valley. I guess the only, the only real downside is the fact that it's just so hot in the summertime. Very hot, yeah. But you're talking about New York makes me think that now whenever I'm in Manhattan, I feel like it's – it's all just like one big outdoor mall. It's like you can't go two blocks without a Forever 21, you know, where it used to be so specific, which is what I love, again, in your book, as you brought back to life that old New York, how it used to be, you know, when I lived there. One of the craziest moments, like speaking of New York City territory, was like your description of going, like you randomly go to look at this 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 apartment. And first of all, it turns out that it's like a protected block from the mafia. And so it's sort of got that glamour of like, oh, it's this is actually happening and there's no crime here because it's it's what. And then it turns out there's like, you know, Iggy Pop, Sonic Youth, Sean and Lennon are all in the basement. How did you get there? Like it was like this weird magnetism of, of creativity or something that um, – you all ended up in the same place, not orchestrating it, but just you just ended up there. Was Were you just astonished by that when that happened? I was just blown away by that. Well, there's one sort of subtext to the book that I tried to convey by sort of by showing and not telling is m- – Growing up, I always thought New York was this huge, you know, center of the world, dynamic megalopolis. 
But once I started living there in the late 80s, I sort of quickly realized that actually back then, and I'm sure you've had this experience as well, like lower Manhattan was almost like a provincial walled <laughs> medieval city. <laughs> You know, you never went mm-hmm. below Chambers Street. You never went north of 23rd Street. <laughs> and you couldn't go east or west because there's water. And so everybody we knew uh-huh. lived in this little area. And for the most part, I mean, this was back when downtown was largely ignored, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. Right. And so when I walked into that building on Mott Street and it was run by the mafia and Sonic Youth and the Butthole Surfers and the Beastie Boys and Iggy Pop and Sean Lennon are rehearsing on the basement in separate spaces. It seemed magical, but it also seemed like it was just an extension of that time mm. in that sort mm-hmm. of bizarrely provincial place. Like, it just felt like every, everything was magical then. And maybe that's also a function of the fact that I was young, you know, I was 22, 23 years old. And so... Everything was new and everything was novel, but just encountering these iconic, phenomenal musicians on a daily basis just seemed, it started to seem normal. Well, here, let's have you read a section where you really paint a really good picture of um, what it was like to be in New York at that time. I think this this short passage really captures a, a moment. I sat at one of the two small tables at the front, eating my bread and drinking my coffee. Soho was quiet. Most of the art galleries weren't open yet. So I looked at my records and the sun reflected from the windows of the gallery across the street. I was a sober Christian who worked in drug-fueled nightclubs. I was living in a filthy city that was being torn apart by drugs, AIDS, and gang violence. And I was sitting in quiet Soho in reflected sunlight, drinking coffee at an ancient bakery while the man behind the counter smiled at me. I was so happy and so lucky. I had a perfect new record to play. I had a perfect little loaf of bread to eat. And I lived in a perfect city. Mm, That is great. So, Moby, whenever we have a guest, we ask them to do uh, try this at home for our listeners, which is when we give our listeners a tip, um, a piece of advice, something to go forth and do at home. Uh, Do you have a piece of advice? That's such a great question. And... I'm overwhelmed with <laughs> how many possible things I can think of. I mean, it's 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 like it's kind of like saying like which Led Zeppelin song should someone listen to if they've never listened to Led Zeppelin? <laughs> You're like, I, 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 where do you start? Yeah, yeah, right. Um, but the one that really comes to mind is, especially for people who live in urban environments, like make an effort to be around nature. And I don't Ooh. want to sound like too much of a hippie, but I find that it's one of the things that I actually love about living in LA is I can go to Angeles National Forest or go to Griffith Park and actually be in an environment that has very little to do with people. Because, I mean, clearly people do interesting things, but there's something I find really remarkable about being reminded of like almost like the continuum of life that's been going on for three and a half billion years that doesn't involve Facebook. Mm. It doesn't involve Groupon. It doesn't involve (laughs) consumer products. It involves this, you know, three and a half billion year continuum of life. And there's just something calming about it. There's something inspiring about it. It helps me to see things from a different perspective. And 
you know, and I feel a, a kinship with, you know, John Muir or Thoreau or other people who clearly have found inspiration in just being in the natural world. So at the risk of sounding like a complete cliched Southern California bald hippie, I would say <laughs> make an effort to go, in, to go into real nature, even if it's just a park where for a brief second you can't see buildings and you can't see other people. Well, and the happiness research really backs you up on that, that they've done studies and there is something about being in nature where it really does give people a boost. And part of it is just like the, the change and the, like the chemicals in the air when you're around a lot of plants. But of course, mm-hmm. it's also the landscape and the stillness and just being tapped into a different thing. That's a great try this at home. And I guess my, my, my sort of codicil to that would be to say, leave your phone at home. Mm. Like, don't go into nature and listen to podcasts. As much as I love podcasts, don't get me wrong, I'm not in any way maligning the world of podcasts, but I'm just saying, like, give yourself a break from the world of people. You know, don't look at a screen, don't listen to music, don't check Facebook, just give yourself an hour of looking at this world that has nothing to do with humans. That is great. And here's one last song. Now, this may be too, again, speaking of hard choices to make, this may be a hard choice. But of all the songs that you've ever written, I'm sure that your favorite is very hard to pick. And it probably changes day to day. You look at this one, and this is your favorite. And then you look at that one, and that one's your favorite. But if you had to pick right now, can you, can you identify one song that of all the songs that you've, you've written is your favorite song? There's one piece of music and I don't even know if I can call it a song because it doesn't have drums and words. Mm. But uh, it's, and I write about how I came up with it in the book. Mm. Um, it's called God Moving Over the Face of the Water. Yes, yes, yes. And I remember that so part. So of, of, of all the pieces of music that I've made, that's, I mean, again, it is hard to pick favorites, yeah. but I, if someone held a gun to my head, <laughs> that's the one I'd probably pick. Moby, thank you so much. Your book, Porcelain, was um, Elizabeth and I both, yeah, raced right through it. Um, It's so fascinating, and it was so great to get a chance to talk to you today. Oh, thanks. It was a great pleasure talking to you. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and luckily I found Quince. Elizabeth, I got the Flow Knit Wide Leg Pant. It's very light. It's perfect for the summer. It packs very easily. I recently went on a trip with my family, and I took it with me, and they were just the thing to wear on a really hot day where I wanted to be covered up, but I wanted something that looked great and also was very comfortable. And the best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash Gretchen for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash Gretchen to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Gretchen. So, Elizabeth, it's time for demerits and gold stars, but this time we're not going to do demerits um, because... Pretty consistently, people write in and say, hey, Gretchen and Elizabeth, why do you always give yourself a demerit and you don't give yourself a gold star? 
because you you know you should really be like looking for reasons to give yourself a gold star and stuff and kind of the idea of the demerit which i think we didn't always make explicit is that we give ourselves a demerit each time because we're trying to sort of make ourselves happier, healthier, more productive. And by identifying places where we've kind of screwed up, then we make ourselves improve or figure out how we could do things better. And in fact, that's really worked because I think there's many times now where you or I have given ourselves a demerit and then like we sort of fixed it or learned from it and moved on. And then the gold star is a way to recognize other people, what other people have done or other things in our lives that have brought us happiness. But many people seem to wish that we would give ourselves more gold stars. So that's fun to do. So let's do it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's, it's sweet how everyone is yeah. like, don't be so hard yeah. on yourselves. Give yourselves gold stars. And occasionally we do give ourselves a gold star. Yes. Um, but we also, we like giving gold stars to other people yeah. and things and ideas. Yeah. Um, Gretch, I have to admit, I had to really like search for a gold star to give myself. <laughs> I, it was not easy, this task. Uh. Um, but I finally settled on a gold star for myself, uh, which is that I have recently started to make stir fry vegetables for dinner ah. again for myself. Um, I was doing it, um, a long time ago for months and months and I felt healthy cause I was eating a ton of vegetables and then I just got out of the habit and I kept saying I was going to do it again and I'd even buy vegetables and then they would rot. Oh. In the fridge, but now the last couple of weeks, I've actually been doing it. Like I went, I even went to the farmer's market near our house and bought vegetables there, which are so cheap and good. Um, I haven't been doing it every night, but I've been doing it a few times a week. So I, I give myself a big gold star for that. That is a big gold star because that is not something that comes naturally to you. So that's, no. that's good. Excellent. Gold star. Thank you. And how about you? What's your gold star? For yourself. My gold star is sort of more fun. Um, so, you know, I'm obsessed with the sense of smell. Yes. And I have this whole um, area, this shelf in my apartment where I have all my collection of smells. There's room sprays. There's like weird samples because I've ordered like tons and tons and tons of samples. Like there's essential oils. There's all sorts of kind of smell, th- a couple books about smell that I really love. And um but I realized it was in this place in my apartment where it was kind of hard to get to. It was a shelf that was sort of behind a sofa. And while you could get to it, it, was, it just felt inaccessible. And so I overlooked it and I thought, okay, you know, I'm going to move my – either I'm calling it my shrine to smell or my scent library. I haven't mm, decided which I like term I like better. scent library. Scent library. So I decided I was going to move the scent library to a shelf that is in a room that's used much more because it's off the kitchen and it has a TV. So mm. we're in there all the time and it's like I'm constantly walking by it. And I thought if I just put it there, then I will enjoy these smells much more frequently. And that is exactly what has happened because now I just will walk by and pull something off and smell it. Or also um, Eleanor loves room sprays. And so like every every night she's like, ooh, let, let's pick a room spray for me to spray in my room. And so that's like a whole little fun thing. And so it's just a good example like it, by making it more convenient to use – these things that I love, I've like really brought it into my life much more. So that was that was something that um, really had a good happiness payoff for me. Nice gold star, Gretch. Maybe we should tell everyone, all of our listeners, to give themselves a gold star. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, everybody, give yourself a gold star for something that you've done. Excellent. Yes, we can all. I'm a gold star junkie, so I don't you find are. it hard to give myself gold stars. <laughs> but I like to give other people gold stars too. 
And that's it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home. Give someone a surprise treat. Let us know what treat did you give and did they love it? Thanks so much to our special guest, Moby. It was so great to have the chance to talk to him. And I'll put a link to his memoir, Porcelain, in the show notes. Again, that's at happiercast.com slash 69 uh, if you want to go check it out. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Henry Malofsky. Also, thanks to Andy Bowers, Laura Mayer, and Kristen Meinzer. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Twitter at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Elizabeth Kraft. Our email address is podcast at GretchenRubin.com. If you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend and subscribe to us in iTunes. And as always, if you want to be signed up to get an email every time we have a new episode, go to happiercast.com slash join, and I'll add you to the list. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and Upward. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework.